0: If you've been enriched by the content on the podcast this year, would you consider making a year-end gift to help support the ongoing ministry of Think Biblically? Your support will make a difference and will allow us to continue providing this resource to you and to others at no cost. To make a gift online, visit giving.biola.edu. That's giving.biola.edu. And be sure to designate your gift to the Think Biblically podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful holiday season. Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics
1: at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today
0: with our our guest, Dr. Daryl Bach, who is the editor and contributor to a fascinating new book that has just come out called Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History. Uh, Daryl is the Senior Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary and Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center for Leadership and Cultural Engagement, also at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's probably best known for his longtime work on the historical Jesus. As As an evangelical, he has spent a lot of years in the trenches with all sorts of people with different views of the historical Jesus and has defended the historicity of the Gospels, the reliability of the New Testament writers, uh, and the accuracy of the portrait of the historical Jesus for at least the last 30 years. So, Darrell, welcome. Thank you for coming on with us, and congratulations on the book. Uh, Although with the number of contributors to this, uh, this must have been quite a job to edit this book.
2: Well, herding squirrels is something that you do in your spare time when you're an editor of a book. Uh, that's what we did. Uh, you forgot one very important credit, and that's a longtime friend of Scott Ray. So uh, um, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yes, Daryl and I actually, our listeners might not be aware of this. We actually grew up together. We have, I think you are, you are the only friend I have had for 60 plus years. Wow. Uh, we grew up literally down the, down the street from each other in Houston uh, and came to faith around, roughly around the same time period.
2: Well, that's, so, under, that's, that's under, under describing. Scott is one of the first people to have shared Christ with me. He's probably one of the reasons I, I, uh, I am a believer today. So um, our, our, And our friendship predates all those dates, and a lot of material has been erased as a result. Yes, let's just say
0: whenever we are in public together, we have a mutual assured destruction pact with each other because <laughs> there's, there's just way too much dirt we have on each other. So I think it's, I think it's fair to say that uh, Daryl's coming to faith happened more in spite of my sharing the gospel with him and not because mm-hmm. of it. It's te- great testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in bringing someone to faith. Fair so, enough. So Daryl, since you've opened the door to that, tell us a little bit about your own sort of spiritual journey.
2: Well, um, I'll start where the story starts, which is uh, when you got back from a Young Life camp telling me I needed to know Jesus, and about the bulk of your presentation was you need to know Jesus, you need to know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. And you could say <laughs> it three different ways. And, which I did uh, I'd, over and over again. <laughs> over again, yes, and I thought you are absolutely crazy. Um, but then over a long period uh, through the sustained consistent testimony of people's lives, really, um, all the objections and other things that I had um, uh, were, were were dealt with, not so much on a cognitive level, but just seeing the kind of life and the way life was oriented for people was the draw that the Spirit used eventually to uh, bring me to himself. And I uh, came to the Lord really between my freshman and now you shared with me when I was in ninth grade. I just want people to know how long this took. Okay. Um, uh, and I came to the Lord between my freshman and sophomore year in college. Um, so that was a sustained testimony over about a five-year year period that we're, that we're talking about here. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes that long because some people are pretty stubborn.
0: I prayed for you for a long time. Well, uh, it, and I did. It, I, I, I did have I the privilege of. I did have the privilege of praying with you when you received Christ. Exactly
2: was. right. So um, uh, anyway, so it's it, uh, So this is really cool in a whole lot of ways. Yeah. So tell
0: tell us a little bit about uh, what motivated you to basically commit your
2: life to the the research. That you've done on the historical Jesus. Well, I remember one of the first conversations we had uh, after I became a believer, which went something like this. And I really have never, in some ways, never left this. And that is, I said to you, um, you know, okay, I've come to the Lord, but I'm a Jesus guy. I'm not a Paul guy. And uh, it's basically the summary of what of, of what I said, and uh, and and really to some degree even though i you know i'm smiling laughing as i'm saying this cuz obviously the whole of scripture is important there is a sense in which within the church at least that i was circulating in when i first became a believer the epistles were far more significant in being dealt with than the gospels were and that always bothered me uh, i thought that um, knowing about jesus and what he was doing and what he was saying was a very important way of understanding our Christian faith after all it was called Christianity um, and and so I thought going back to the source was important and so for all those reasons I always was focused and fascinated by and committed to trying to understand what the Gospels were about and then when I got pulled into particularly into the Gospel of Luke, Acts became a natural appendage to that concern. Uh, the early genera- the early decades of the early church, And so that's really where my career has been focused.
1: You've been studying the historical Jesus now for a few decades. I'm curious just how you've seen historical Jesus studies change throughout that time.
2: Well, when I first started, uh, there was a lot of work on what was called the criteria of authenticity. And there was very high skepticism about what the Gospels gave us. Uh, There was a focus on figuring out what the titles of Jesus meant in particular. Um, Much of that, interestingly, has changed. There's very much an awareness that Jesus belongs in a historical Jewish context. Um, There is much more regard for the way in which the Gospels work. The whole what's called Third Quest movement, locating Jesus in the context of Judaism, has become much more important in the historical Jesus discussion. That has uh, raised a lot of awareness that so much of the Gospels, even on strict, kind of the strictest historical standards, uh, offer us uh, at least a pretty good glimpse of Jesus. And then the shift, and I think this is extremely significant, has gone from analyzing titles to taking a look at, um, uh, at actions, and the cultural scripts that stand behind them so that when Jesus does something, he's also revealing who he is, even though it isn't coming in a sentence that's telling you what he's doing. The action is speaking, in some cases, louder than words. And so a lot of historical Jesus work has gone recently has gone into seeing what those cultural scripts are and what that message is. And it fills out what, what Jesus is either saying about himself or what people are perceiving about him.
1: It sounds like there's a real growth over the past few decades in scholarship, giving confidence to what we can know about Jesus. How about you personally? And I ask because as I dove into a dissertation, in some ways, my confidence grew in one area. But on the other hand, I realized, gosh, this is so complex. And there's really smart people who disagree with me. How has this journey studying historical Jesus for decades shaped you personally and your confidence in the Jesus of the scriptures?
2: Well, I think what it's done is it has, uh, on the one hand, disabused me of certain assumptions that I came up, came in with about um, Jesus and about how things worked on some cases, and in many cases in a positive way, even though it may have started with a question that involved doubt. Um On the other hand, it has significantly reinforced my confidence overall in what the Scriptures are doing because the the deeper I dug, the more I began to find links, and this will connect to something I said earlier, links between what you see Jesus doing and what you see happening in the epistles. Um, Sometimes when people read the Bible, they'll read the Bible and they'll think, well, the Gospels almost seem like they're on another planet. Than what I see going on in the epistles, why is that? But the d- deeper you dig, the more you realize: no, they actually are very much on the same plane. It's just that the epistles are picking up kind of the results and and the residual of what's coming out of Jesus's life and ministry and where he was trying to take it, and they've picked up the ball and run with it. Daryl, uh, in in the book again, I want to commend this to
0: our listeners: Jesus, skepticism, and the problem of history. You list some historical facts about Jesus that you claim are so well-supported that even the vast majority of non-Christian scholars accept them about Jesus. What what are some of those facts, and why do you think they are so well-accepted?
2: Well, it took um, actually a page of bullet points to do this. and uh, I, I didn't count them up, but uh, 2, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 points are on pages 22 and 23, Uh, and it starts from Jesus was born in 6 to 4 BC. He was a Galilean Jewish man, grew up in Nazareth, native tongue was Aramaic, baptized in the wilderness by John in the Jordan, conducted an itinerant ministry through Galilee and neighboring regions, followed by a group of disciples, both men and women, taught about the kingdom of God, often spoke in parables, reputed to be a wonder worker who cast out demons and healed people. I'm sure we'll come back to that showed, preached compassion to people whom Jews commonly regarded as unclean or wicked, engaged the Pharisees in debate over matters related to Jewish law, went to Jerusalem at Passover the week of his death, caused a disturbance in the temple a few days before his arrest, had a final meal with his inner circle of disciples that became the basis for what Christians call the Last Supper, arrested at the behest of the high priest in Jerusalem, crucified under Pontius Pilate in 30 or 33 AD, was believed by his disciples to appear to them shortly after his death and experiences that convinced them that God had raised him from the dead." Every one of those points is, I think now, no longer in significant dispute. Now what you will notice is there's not a lot of content in that material as to what Jesus specifically taught. That's what gets debated. But the core outline of his ministry, and particularly what led to his death, is very much something that uh, most everyone working in historical Jesus studies agrees on.
0: How do you account for that change? Because I I remember when when I went to college, and we had some of these conversations, and I took religion courses at my secular university, uh, most of those things that you've listed were in significant debate. Uh, so what's happened to the field that has well, caused I think, this kind of change?
2: What's happened to the field is this move into recognizing the Jewish backdrop and context of Jesus's ministry and the coherence of, uh, be, you have to be able to explain one reality about Jesus, and that is what in the world got him crucified. Um, and, and that not as a theological problem, but strictly as a historical problem. And I make the distinction because Jesus is actually crucified for sedition. That's why you get crucified in the Roman world. And so you have to be able to figure out what got him there, especially since he didn't have an army. He didn't fight anybody, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, violence or anything like that. So what in the world would cause the representative of the Roman world to put Jesus to death for sedition? And you've got to be able to sort that out, and then you've also got to be able to sort out the Jewish opposition to Jesus, which is clearly in place, and it's also clearly in place by the time the apostles begin their work in Jerusalem. So, um, so all of that is in play, and and so this outline begins to make sense out of that story. And then the harder issue, the next level of conversation, is to fill all that in. You know, now that we've got these. 18 kind of points of reference in a template and in a skeleton of what Jesus's life is about. Uh, How do you fill that in and what does that look like? And then that's where the discussions tend to come in now. Whereas before, I think we were in a situation where some people even doubted whether he existed at all. Or if they did exist, they said, well, we can't really know very much about him because we can't really trust the gospels. They're prejudiced sources. There's also a lot of recognition This is ironic in light of postmodernism, but I think what postmodernism did is it opened up the idea that people do have biases and perspectives, but that doesn't necessarily close you off from understanding what they're trying to say. And so that combination of things, I think, has um, led to a redirection of, of Jesus studies, particularly in the third quest, Aspect and frankly, another factor is is that a lot of conservatives who used to stay out of the historical Jesus discussion have come into it and have participated in it and have made the case for uh, the trustworthiness of the gospels. And although you know we haven't convinced everybody about everything, there are things that we have done that have made steps in a positive direction. So you're su- is, are you suggesting that for a college student today
0: who took that same say that took a course on the life of Jesus at, at UCLA or Cal State Fullerton or a place like that, might hear something really different
2: than the course that I took in college 30 years ago. Conceivably, that would be very much related to who's teaching the class and how wh- how good a job the professor in the class does to making the student aware of the full nature of the conversation. I'm aware of universities where, where there's almost a uh, pretending that, uh, that these discussions uh, aren't going on and almost walling off a certain segment of the conversation, those students wouldn't hear this. But if a, but if the professor really is reflecting the full discussion and where it's coming from and who's doing the writing today in this area, uh, then they should be made aware of this shift.
1: That's a great perspective about where scholarship is at and how that does or does not necessarily translate to the church for one, or even to academia. L- let me ask you this. You have a, a section in, in the book where you talk about the Gnostic Gospels. What are they? How how much do they offer us, historically speaking, of value? But then why is there so much scholarly enthusiasm about them today?
2: Well, that's actually quite an involved question. Um, but let me, let me start here. Um, the reason people are intrigued by these gospels is that they have been um, reinserted into our attention by recent discoveries. Now, by recent discoveries, I mean within m- much of our uh, of our lifetime. By which I mean Scott's and mine, because Sean, you're a young guy. But um, uh, but back in the late '40s, which actually is before Scott and I were born. Uh, the Nag Hammadi texts that. were discovered, and yeah, I'm gonna have I'm going be able to give our age here in a second. Anyway, um, uh, the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered, which was the our first chance to really get a hold of the mass of these texts, uh, which we had known about from the report of the Church Fathers for a long time, but didn't couldn't actually get our hands on in a significant kind of way. It opened up a whole area of study uh, and fresh assessment. But the problem is these texts are late texts. They are second and third century texts for the most part. Uh, So they're a century removed from the earliest church. They are um, a hybrid theologically uh, in that Gnostic Christianity is not Orthodox Christianity. Gnostic Christianity believes in a dualism that uh, what is spiritual is good, what is earthly, was flawed from the very beginning. That doesn't fit in with Genesis 1 and 2, that the creation was very good from the beginning. And the earliest Christianity came right out of Judaism with that theology at the core of its existence, that is, its Christian existence. So there's a disconnect there. It's val- The material is valuable for letting us know what Christianity is going through in the second and third centuries and beyond. Uh, in those early centuries, but not for the first. And I tell people the only document out of this material that's really fascinating is the Gospel of Thomas, which is 114 independent sayings of Jesus, alleged independent sayings of Jesus. And you read it in about Oh, 50% of it is, you go, that reads like the Gospels, because it does read like the Gospels. You read another 25% of it, that's sort of like the Gospels. And you read another 25% and you go, that's not like the Gospels at all. I have no idea where that came from. And that's because that document has a foot both in the church tradition and in this extra uh, tradition, this side tradition that's growing. Now, the way this is all this material has been presented to the public in the context of culture, is they're the secret Gospels, the mystery Gospels, Mm. and everybody wants to know what the secret is. Or it's framed as history is written by the winners. We now have the voice of the losers, and the losers' history in genealogy goes back to the very, the claim is, to the very earliest period. So in the beginning, there wasn't an Orthodox Christianity. There were competing Christianities, and Orthodoxy eventually won. That actually, I think, is a false narrative, um, that in the beginning you had Orthodox Christianity. That Christianity, in some circles, became combined with a Greek Neoplatonistic philosophy. When that happened, it moved in the direction of Gnosticism. And in the second and third centuries, you had these competing alternate Christianities that were operating from the second and third century on about what the true Christian faith was. But that was not the earliest faith of the first century. And it's it's misleading and anachronistic to project that all the way back into the origins of the faith. So, uh, sorry, I couldn't do that much more concisely, but that's basically what's going on with the Gnostic Gospels. The core point is this, when you boil it all down. The Gnostic Gospels are fascinating and important pieces of material for studying the early church and what was going on around it in the second and third centuries. But it doesn't help you with the first century and the Christianity that we care about is the Christianity as it existed in the first.
0: Darrell, it seems to me one of the major stumbling blocks to accepting the the orthodox view of the historical Jesus are the 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 numerous accounts in the Gospels and the Book of Acts of miracles that were done. Um, How do you respond to the claim made by numerous critics, Bart Ehrman's probably the most current and most popular of those, that the miracles of Jesus are just, they're just simply outside the parameters of what we can study historically?
2: Yeah, um, this also is a a complex question in some ways, uh, because there is what we might call, an ontological naturalism. That's the idea that God doesn't exist and miracles don't happen, which automatically at the start kind of nullifies what the Bible is claiming. I always tell people the Bible has a problem with modern, many in modern culture because it has miracles. And we are predisposed one way or the other to either accept the possibility of what's going on in the Bible, or we have to have another explanation for what's going on in the Bible. The naturalist has to have Another explanation for what's going on in the Bible. So someone who believes that God doesn't exist and miracles don't happen, they've got to explain what's going on in the text because the text is literally littered with miracles, not just in Jesus' ministry, but throughout the pages of Scripture. A second view, which is an attempt by some to try and be able to have a conversation in light of the different worldviews that God exists and miracles can happen, or God doesn't exist and miracles can happen, is what is called methodological naturalism, which argues that history is not capable of addressing um, the question of God's presence and activity. So it's a limitation on history, so we can't go there. The best we can do is we can't explain this on natural terms, but we can't explain it. That's about as far as you can get. And, and frankly, some evangelicals abra- embrace that view alongside skeptics. I actually think it's a mistake to do so, um, because I think what you're trying to do when you're dealing with history, period, is asking the question, what happened and who's responsible for it? Um, and our worldview is either, has to be either that God does or doesn't exist. And by bracketing him out of the discussion, you're actually closing off one of the possibilities which doesn't seem to me to be a very responsible way to proceed. So the best way to do this is to leave open the possibility that God can act or that the action doesn't have a naturalistic explanation and uh, do the best you can to try and persuade people who don't think that God exists, that you know maybe they've closed off the possibility before even taking it under consideration and go from
1: there. I have a specific question for you related actually to Christmas. And now I lost my train of thought. One more time. Daryl, I have a specific question for you related to Christmas. I've had conversations with people and they discover Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. Get a little worried and start to suspect or wonder how many other seemingly pagan things have crept their way into the Gospels. So my question is, why was that date even chosen? And how much confidence can we have, more generally, in the birthplace and the time of Jesus?
2: Okay, and, and the short answer to this is is that the reason that date was picked is because it was a Christian alternative to a pagan celebration uh, at the turn of the year. You know, Christmas is basically um, you're worshiping at the time of the year when we go from death to life, when we go from the shortest day of the year. Uh, and begin to move into the season where we're going to get longer and longer days. It's, you know, the winter equinox. So, um, and there was a, a festival called Saturnalia, which was celebrated on the 25th of December that led to that date becoming the Christian alternative. The The, the fact is that because Jesus exists as a person, we know he had a birth date. So that part is a given. Um, and uh, the fact that we don't know when exactly he was born is a reflection of the fact that this is an event coming out of the na- ancient world in which Jesus was born in a very obscure corner of the Greco-Roman world in a little town outside of Jerusalem you know Bethlehem etc and the reason we're confident about the rest of that is because um, Bethlehem's not the most natural place to have a um, a transcendent figure be born uh if you were just going to invent the story of Jesus being born as the deliverer of Israel to begin with, and you know, the savior of the world on the other and the church were just creating this out of whole cloth. Um, you would probably have him born. If you could pick a city in Israel, you probably have him born in Jerusalem. Of course he's not born there. He's born in Bethlehem, a little village, maybe all of 500 people at the time, uh, granted close to Jerusalem but not Jerusalem so it doesn't look like it's the kind of detail that would be made up uh, and as such um lends credibility because of its its lack of um, credibility as something made up uh, of being an authentic tradition and like I say we know that Jesus was born because Jesus lived and died and
1: and to get to life and death you got to have a birth That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Good good practical reasoning. I like that. Yeah. Back to your book, Jesus Skepticism and the Problem of History. I'm curious how you navigate where the world of scholarship is on Jesus and the local church. Because, for example, through some of the criteria that, that you and other Jesus scholars will use, we can have more confidence in, say, the feeding of the 5,000 because it's in all four gospels as opposed to Jesus turning water into wine because it's just in uh, the gospel of John. How do you navigate from scholarship to the church community without people kind of freaking out and misunderstanding what's being said and what can be established historically versus what we believe by faith? And you've just
2: illustrated the gap that exists between scholarly work and the understanding of the early church by uh, an appeal to one of the criteria, which is called the criteria of multiple attestation. Multiple attestation does not mean what many people think it means, which is because it's mentioned in four Gospels, there are four witnesses to it. What the criteria of multiple attestation actually means is, if you take the tradition strands that feed into the Gospels, so this would be, in most forms, the Gospel of Mark as the first Gospel, the teaching that Matthew and Luke share from Jesus that's not tied to Mark, that is normally called Q for a, so- a teaching source, a teaching anthology source that we feel like the early church used. The unique stuff tied to Matthew, the unique stuff tied to Luke, the unique stuff tied to John's gospel, each one of those counts as a single witness. You don't get a double witness simply because the story is repeated because Matthew might have gotten it from Mark. Okay, so that's still just one witness. You're just reusing it. You only count multiple attestation when the teaching or the theme belongs to multiple levels of the tradition. And then the premise of that is the more widespread a tradition is across the various strands that are feeding the Gospels, the more likely you are to be dealing with something that Jesus taught or did. And so uh, so that's actually how the criteria of, uh, of multiple att- multiple attestation works. Now, having said that, um, in current study, and I'm a little bit in the weeds here, but in current study, a lot of people question the criteria in general that I sometimes use because they think they're not fail-safe, which is actually technically correct. They're not fail-safe proofs, but they are one tool that one can use in having this discussion. A far better tool and a far more important tool is dealing with the cultural backdrop of the Gospels, and the overall cohesive story that the Gospels present about who Jesus is. After all, if the premise of the skeptic is true, that what happened is people came along and added later and later, and they added accretion levels to the story of Jesus, um, you wouldn't think that because that's being done from different people from different places at different times, that there would be a coherence to to that linkage. Uh, as the story moves through but in fact the gospels do have very much a coherent story that doesn't look like the addition of multiple layers coming from different places and spaces but actually an internally consistent ministry that fits in the cultural backdrop of the gospels that whole narrative is actually more important to making sense out of jesus than any criteria one would put forward now having said all that the early church uh, the local church doesn't hear any of that okay they aren't even a part of that conversation. They don't even, in some cases, know those conversations are going on. But in the defense of what we have in Scripture, to a skeptical audience for whom inspiration is not a functional category, to be able to explain the text on that basis can become an important conversation to have if, when sharing with someone, they say, well, that inspiration stuff... I, I. I even question whether God exists. I don't even think that category exists. So how in the world are you going to explain what's going on in the Gospels to someone for whom that category isn't going to work? That's what historical Jesus study, at least from a more conservative point of view, is trying to do, is to supply the answers to that question. Daryl, one last
0: question for you. Um, And so give give me the the -the cut-to-the-chase version of this. Uh, Why... Why should the average person in the church believe that the gospel records of the life of Jesus are accurate?
2: Well, for the very reason that I've already suggested, that is that they present a very coherent story set in context to explain not just the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, but also it gives an explanation for why the life of Jesus um, began and ended, the way that it did, as well as what comes afterwards. You know, my key short answer to a question like that is is that we never would have gotten a figure like the Apostle Paul if all this was made up after the fact. He was in Jerusalem at the time, knew what the official Jewish position was, etc. There would have been no place for him to go to have the belief that he had, if the teaching of Jesus and the theology of the early church wasn't as developed as the Gospels and Acts presented at the time at which his conversion took place, which is very shortly after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus within at most a couple of years. So, um, So he's right up against the events with a knowledge of those events. That tells me that the gospel material has a chance to be true. One other important factor here is the way in which stories got told in the ancient world. Uh, They get passed on primarily orally. You have multiple witnesses attesting to this material. You have the repeated tellings of core events that impacted people's lives. And in that combination, the overseeing of that tradition which then became the content for the Gospels, you've got a tradition line or a tradition stream in terms of how that material is being overseen that guarantee the accuracy of what's going on. It's not the case of randomly retelling a story or experiencing an event and then 30 years of it later having to recall it. It's being retold again and again and again and again in between that period before it ever gets written down in a gospel and much like we would come to learn the words of a hymn by repeatedly singing it rather than trying to memorize those words a person comes to know the story of jesus in the ancient world by hearing what he did and said again and again and again and again until they get it that's
0: thank you that, that's really helpful that's a that's a, just a, a very helpful summary of why people should believe that the gospel accounts are accurate uh, I want to commend to our listeners again. The, this new book is really terrific called Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History. Uh, Daryl is one of the editors of this. And this is, this is really special for me, Daryl, to have my, my longest term friend and very dear, close friend on the program with us. So thanks for coming on with us. Thanks for your, just the, the investment that you've made in historical Jesus studies and for all the, the great stuff you have going on.
2: Well, it's my absolute pleasure. The joy is absolutely shared. Uh, And just let me commend uh, the school out there, um, Biola Talbot. It's a great school. It's, um, you know, one of the shining stars in our country for the faith. And uh, we just appreciate all the work that's being done there. Well, thanks, my friend. It's
0: It's been great having you on with us. My pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically. Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Daryl Bach, in the book, Jesus, Skepticism and the Problem of History. And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.